Companies face cyber attacks nearly all the time, but who is attacking them and why? Solving that mystery often involves threat intelligence, which are technical and contextual clues. John Waters is the founder of Eyesight Partners, a threat intelligence company, which is now part of FireEye. He tells us how companies use threat intelligence to figure out what threats to focus on. Thank you for joining us, John. Thanks, Jeremy. What's the difference between good threat intelligence and bad threat intelligence? Yes, so the objective of the customer when using intelligence and applying that to um, you know, their business process is to help them shrink the problem. They've gained visibility to their environment through all the various technologies and analytical tools that they've purchased. So that's created this flood of alerts. And what their objective is, is to try to find those alerts that present the biggest risk to their enterprise or their government agency. So if all they have from an intelligence provider is a set of data that are atomic indicators around a known bad IP or a potentially hostile piece of malware or registry keys that have been connected to something bad before without the associated threat context of what threat methodology is this associated with and what's the motivation, intent, and capability of the adversary, they, in effect, increase the problem, not shrink the problem. So bad intel is just data that may or may not be bad. It's not verified to where you're not sure whether it's a false positive or not, so you can't drive any action on it. So what you're doing is further complicating the job of the security operations team versus simplifying the job, which is enabled by good intel. So let me give you an alternative example. So in good intel, you already have pre-positioned the threat context. Say so this group operates this campaign against banks to accomplish the following objective. Here's their command and control. Here's the infrastructure they use. Here's the malware they use. Here's the way they, here's their callback when they, once they gain access, you know, here's all the technical details. Here's the file size. Here's the type of spear phishing campaigns they use. So, so all of the machine readable data then gets extracted from that playbook, you know, how they're executing. And that becomes the handshake to the customer's environment. So what you do is you run a correlation between all those alerts you're seeing in your environment from your, you know, visibility technology that then hits the API of all that intelligence information, and then you get matches and say, okay, I've got a 1,000 alerts today. I've got time to do with five. I've got matches on 15 of them. Of those matches, these five present the biggest risk to my organization because I know what this particular group is trying to do to me, and I know that is a significant consequence. So I understand that iSight has intelligence analysts in some 20 countries? Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a very long haul business to build. All of our resources went into building our capability, and we had this this group of customers that was primarily government and financial services in the early days. And then once we hit a scale point, and the adversaries began to shift well beyond government and financial services, they expanded their target set, and we really hit a scale. And in terms of our coverage. When companies get that intelligence report, what actions do they take? Uh, one, that, that becomes the, the top of the stack in terms of what they're going to prioritize that day. Uh, we don't have one customer that has more people to deal with alerts than they do alerts. So they're dealt with the economic reality of scarce resources, and they have to apply those scarce resources in a way that makes the most business sense for their firm. But in order to do that, they first say, okay, that intel suggests to me 
that alert one is a heck of a lot more risk to my organization than alert two. So I'm going to focus on that. So you focus on that at two levels. First level remediation, which is how do I actually go contain a host or implement network blocking to try to prevent that from future proliferation. And then second of all, I say, okay, now I know I've got an adversary problem. Let me pivot back to the database and look at all the other indicators associated with that group. And I'm going to proactively hunt for those in my environment because I might have detected it in one instance, but I might not have detected it in other parts of my infrastructure. So that allows you to get a detection somewhere and hunt everywhere to proactively remediate any indication of compromise from that particular group. So, so that's the fundamental pivot. The last residual benefit that comes from that is people talk about ROI and security. And executive teams are constantly saying, all I hear is more, 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 and I don't even know what return I'm getting on my investments in security. Once you have an ability to link the, the, the protective detection and, and prevention activities, you can now begin to pivot into an ROI reflected through impact avoidance. I wanted to ask you about attribution. How important is attribution for companies, and how does that differ for the importance of attribution for governments? I think, I think the importance of attribution for companies, uh, the, the benefit of attribution for the most part stops at understanding the motivation, intent, and capability of a persona. You know, this particular group has significant capability. They target your industry for the following objective. You need to have that level of knowledge to calibrate risk. And I'll give you an anecdote of how you can think about that after this. If you think of the government's knowledge, they would say, okay, that persona is conducting this illegal activity against our commercial or critical infrastructure. I need to go figure out who that guy is and see how we can apply you know, law enforcement pressure to try to keep that from happening and or political pressure if it's connected to nation state uh, to try to keep them from targeting our economic lifeblood. So, so they try to pivot and do their own research beyond persona into actual true identity. For us, we're not in the investigation business. We're not in the law enforcement business. So there's no real return on investment for us. And in fact, a small percentage of our, quote, actors that we track, we're, there is a very small percentage where we know true identity. And it's typically where they made a mistake and they would use the same alias in a social networking site, yeah. for example. So most of them for us stops at persona, which gives you motivation, intent, capability, informing risk-based decisions. Government want to know true identity so they can apply law enforcement or political pressure based on that true identity. We know that a lot of the large attacks this year, including those against the Democratic National Committee, involved spear phishing, which technically is a, is a pretty simplistic kind of attack. Is email still the largest threat facing organizations? Spear phishing continues to be successful, um, and you know, you're exploiting human trust. And if, if you get an email from somebody that you know with, a, with something that sounds like a realistic request to open an attachment email, you, know, you only need a few percentage of the people. You, know, actually, you only need one to really open it up to, to gain access in the environment. And once you you own that individual, you can move laterally and exploit their trust that they build in their network. And then you add more people to that network and you exploit their trust with the people in their network. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, very wide spread control over a particular target. So spear phishing continues to be the, the simplest way in. I mean, why would I burn a, a zero day exploit that might have, you know, market street value of one or $200,000 if I can simply 
get somebody to click on a link or navigate to a website where I have a water holding attack set up. So spearfishing is still number one, and I think that will be for some time. We saw that in many of the politically motivated attacks that the email accounts of people ended up being publicly released. Do you see a rising interest in encryption to prevent that sort of embarrassment and also to protect intellectual property? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's becoming more widespread, certainly among large enterprises. Um, but, you know, if you think of some of the more high-profile you know, targeted attacks against email, they're relatively small enterprises, AAKA like the Democratic National Party, right? So when you have targets there of small, you know, environments, whether nonprofits or someone's home email or whatever, I think that was really part of the source of agitation among a lot of the folks talking about, you know, Hillary Clinton's personal email and, and some of the things she carried on it. People just don't have the same level of security in your individual home and in small nonprofits and then and even mid-sized companies than the larger enterprises do. So, you know, I, I think you're going to see a mainstreaming of that type of encryption strategy uh, begin to happen here in future years. So that, that's one element I think you'll see. But the other reality that you have to look at that through is that the access points into your environment now are so widespread if you look at connectivity. Companies are connected to their vendors, their suppliers, their partners, their you know, their accountants, their auditors, their lawyers, their HVAC systems. If you look back to the old target breaches, yeah. the, the amount of connectivity into your environment is so widespread, it's really hard to say I'm going to protect every single connection because it spans well beyond your control zone. So, you know, the, the people are, are hesitant to spend a ton of money on any one given strategy thinking that's going to be the silver bullet that solves all the problems, because the reality is they realize they can solve that gateway in, but, but there's other ways to gain access to the data. Thank you very much for joining us, John. Oh, you're welcome. Nice talk to you, Jeremy. I've been speaking with John Waters, who's the founder of iSight Partners, which is a threat intelligence company. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk.